the idea of a missional community is we're always on mission to make disciples of Jesus, and yet we're meant to do it together with others. And so it's the tension of mission and community together, whereas people tend to swing the pendulum between the two. Like we're all about community, but we're not on mission to make disciples. So we're all about making disciples, but we're all doing it as individual evangelists. And uh, both those are ineffective and, and really are not in line with the biblical picture that you see with Jesus and his disciples and with the early church. So that's really what it is. It's a smaller group of people committed to love one another, to be a picture of the kingdom of God breaking in as we serve tangibly, and then to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in us through a verbal witness, hopefully then making disciples in the context of community. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Jeff Vanderstelt. Jeff serves as a teaching pastor and director of missional communities at Doxa Church in Bellevue, Washington. He's also the founder and visionary leader of Saturate and the Soma family of churches, as well as the author of two books, including Gospel Fluency, Speaking the Truths of Jesus into the Everyday Stuff of Life from Crossway. Today, Jeff and I discuss what it means to be fluent in the gospel and why that's an essential part of what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus. He reflects on his own journey as a pastor and efforts to cultivate a culture of gospel fluency in the churches where he's ministered. He highlights why the concept of the missional community is so central to how he views what the church is called to be. And he unpacks why living in the light of the gospel should impact literally every facet of our lives as God's people. Let's get started. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining me on the Crossway Podcast today. Well, it's good to be with you. So I think it's fair to say that you are a very busy man. Uh, you're the lead pastor, lead teaching pastor at Doxa Church in Bellevue, Washington, the founder and chairman of the board of a ministry called Saturate, and the visionary leader of the Soma family of churches. And on top of that, perhaps most importantly, you're a husband and a father. And so I guess my first question for you is, uh, when do you sleep? <laughs> uh, I get a good eight hours usually almost every night. So seven to eight hours. Do you uh, really? Yeah, I think the, the key is getting really good teams and really good leaders because every one of those things that you just mentioned that I have leadership over has generally an executive director or a really good um, on the ground, hands you know hands-on leader leading a lot of the day-to-day, which... I'm not as good at. So I just know what I'm good at and try to do what I'm best at and let others do the things they're best at. So, so yeah, every one of those organizations you named, I could have named all the reasons are connected to people that I really trust that lead really well. So, mm. so how would you describe what you feel like you are particularly gifted for? Yeah, I think, uh, one, I have a, a very uh, realistic but hopeful view of the future. And so the ability to, you know, be confident in what God's going to bring about, uh, because of Jesus's power um, through the gospel, I, I'm good at casting vision of what I believe a biblically informed, but uh, realistic and hopeful vision of the future that people want to give their life to. So that's one thing I think I do well. I think the other thing is I, I tend to, God tends to use me to catalyze. So to stir up energy and excitement about what his word teaches, especially in terms of like getting on mission in everyday life. And so there's a catalytic strength I bring to a moment in a situation. And then I have an ability to kind of architect um, 
how might a church or a person begin to live that out in terms of like painting a strategic picture forward. Um, and then <clears throat> I think I teach the word of God in a way that's not just uh, informative, but very compelling. I, I think, I think I'm a hands-on grassroots kind of guy. People talk about me and say, I live at the 60,000 foot level of vision and at the grassroots of every day. It's the in-between stuff that I need a lot of help with. <laughs> so, so that's kind of how I think how God uses me um, to serve others. And I, I have an ability to be pretty present in the moment. And so people generally have a sense that I, I hear them, I see them, and I'm able to enter into whatever situation. So there's this kind of fluidity I think it's missionary-like in that sense that I can get into a context and quickly assess what is needed for the moment and then enter in and bring those skills that I just described. Hmm. Yeah, so when you, you talk about your kind of that 60,000-foot visionary type of person, you can kind of cast that big vision and get people excited about kind of a, a big goal but maybe need a little bit of help of figuring out how to get there. Do you feel like there are times when the people that you're working with who are maybe better at connecting A to Z and you know all those middle steps that are important. Do you feel like your vision ever needs to be tweaked or nuanced because of that? Like, do you feel like there's this, there's this maybe uh, easiness to kind of maybe oversimplify things or not think of certain dynamics? Absolutely, yeah. It, it, and it's interesting, you know, you know my, some of my history. I planted a church in Tacoma called Soma, and, and that's a very different, Tacoma's a very different context than Bellevue. and. So even that coming to Bellevue and taking all these things that that I did in in Tacoma and we saw God really bless, and then come to the east side of Seattle, which is a very different context, and try to do the same kinds of things, the vision was still great. And people always said, I mean, the, the joke at one point people said, Jeff, you cast the vision of the top of Mount Everest, but most people are still drunk at base camp. <laughs> <clears throat> that was kind of the the way that we used to say it. I didn't say it that way, but others did. Like you got to get down there and just, you know, meet them where they're at. And the trek up the mountain may look very different than it did in Tacoma. And so I really needed to kind of hold loosely some of the ways that I used to do it in one place and allow others to kind of reshape that. And that wasn't easy at first, if I'm honest. It was really a struggle to let go because I think we can fall into methodology where our methods are what we love more than anything mm. instead of the heart of the gospel and the mission of Jesus and however he might want to get us there. And so in that situation, yeah, I had to trust that the people that were there longer and were seeing the challenges uh, probably had some better ways forward than maybe I did to, yeah. to connect the A to Z to use your language. Well, yeah, for, for those who are less familiar with your story, um, in 2015, you were asked to become lead teaching pastor, pastor at Doxa Church, which was formerly Mars Hill Church just outside of Se Seattle. Um, and I, I wonder, was the transition hard in part because it seemed like you were not only moving into a very high-profile role for various reasons, but you, you were also the head then of this pretty large organization that uh, that seems, a church, that seems like it maybe was pretty different than the model of church that you were leading before, which which I think Soma was um, maybe a smaller, a little bit more intimate, less heavy on the programming side of things, and a little bit more on you know, emphasizing kind of a simple church model. Was that part of the challenge that you were having to wrestle through? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the way I would say it is that at Soma, we saw Sunday as mobilizing every day. And uh, at Mars Hill, and then subsequently Doxa, uh, the group life seemed to point more towards Sunday. 
<clears throat> so the the goal tended to be more get them to Sunday, whereas in Soma it was get them from Sunday. Uh, so they're ascending from Sunday into everyday life. And, and that's, that's oversimplifying. That's, you know, obviously it's not quite that simple, but yeah. if I had to simplify, that's how I'd say it. So the, the challenge of helping people realize that Sunday wasn't going to be the discipleship center, that everyday life in the home with people in missional communities and what we call DNA groups, which are triads of men or women who really are going after the heart together. That's where a lot more of the discipleship would happen. That was a big shift. And so, and that did not happen quickly. I'd say now that that is who we are five and a half years into it. And I, when I came, I said, I thought it would take five to seven years to make a transition. And I feel like we're there now. It's And we don't downplay Sunday. We think it's Sunday is still very important. It's just the trajectory. The trajectory we're moving from Sunday to every day, not from every day to Sunday. Mm. That's interesting. I think that's that's probably one of the other things that you're best well known for um, is you're kind of the missional community guy. At least I know that's how I thought of you, and that's how some of my friends thought of you, uh, you know, a number of years ago. And so I guess for those who maybe aren't super familiar with that term, uh, what are you getting at with those two words? Yeah, the concept is that every Christian is a missionary. And we're always on mission. If you have the Spirit of God, it's because the Spirit of God has been given, like Jesus said in, in Acts 1 8, so that we might be as witnesses. Um, and so we're sent and empowered by the Spirit, just as Jesus was empowered and sent by the Spirit. You know, as the Father sent me, so I send you, he says. And then he breathes on them, says, Receive the Holy Spirit. That's in John 20. And so that concept that we're all missionaries and that we're not to do it alone. So you don't see any of the missionary work of Jesus and his disciples done in isolation. I mean, you've got a, a rare occasion, you know, like with Philip, uh, but the majority is they, they went together, they were in homes, or they were in the marketplace, or they were in the temple courts, or but they were together. There was a sense that you could see what the family of God looked like by watching how the disciples love one another. And then that itself became a witness to the power of the gospel to transform and reconcile. And so the idea of a missional community is, we're always on mission to make disciples of Jesus, and yet we're meant to do it together with others. And so it's the tension of mission and community together, whereas ten, people tend to swing the pendulum between the two. Like we're all about community, but we're not on mission to make disciples. So we're all about making disciples, but we're all doing it as individual evangelists. And uh, both those are ineffective and, and really are not in line with the biblical uh, picture that you see with Jesus and his disciples and with the early church. So that's really what it is. It's a smaller group of people committed to love one another, to be a picture of the kingdom of God breaking in as we serve tangibly, and then to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in us through a verbal witness, hopefully then making disciples in the context of community. And therefore, like what most often happens, I think, in the church is if, if Sunday is the primary means by which people come to faith, which these days hardly anybody's able to do that very effectively because people are not going to church, you know, right. fundamentally. Non-believers aren't. And so if, if, if they be, were to come to faith, then you'd have to then teach them what it means to be a disciple. But if they're coming to faith in the midst of a community that are disciples, then they're being discipled before they even come to faith. So they already know what it means to be a Christian because they've been in the midst of your community observing it long enough that when they become a Christian, they understand what it means. So they don't need like a, a new believers course necessarily, <clears throat> which is what usually happens when you have no communal mission because they actually haven't seen it yet. Well, yeah, I think that that's often the way uh, we, we tend to think about even evangelism is, um, you know, it's it's bringing people to some kind of event, maybe bring them, invite them to Sunday morning. That's kind of, hey, if you do that, you know, you are you are really taking that step out. And uh, maybe you're actually sharing the gospel with somebody, but it's it's sort of like 
you're looking for that conversion decision. And then it's like, get them to church. And then that's where they're going to be discipled. Um, but you're kind of saying that you think that's maybe a little bit out of whack as to what we're actually called to do. Well, it, it puts a, a whole lot of weight on Sunday. It also puts a whole lot of weight on one person. And that, you know, usually that's the person who's preaching, which in a day when we see a, a, a ramping up of narcissism and codependency in the leadership of the church, which, you know, that's a whole other topic, but um, that, that is real. And the reason why is because we're lifting one person up so high and putting so much weight on that one person to do what really the whole church is supposed to do. We're all called to make disciples. We're all called to share the gospel. And so, yeah, I think it's it's problematic on that front. But then the other front is that most people um, are going to need you to be, and I'm talking about you as a, the normal everyday Christian. They need you to share the gospel because if you don't know how to talk about Jesus, they think that the, only the pastor is the one who really believes this stuff. <laughs> and and you, you kind of are an infant in it. You know, like, I don't know how to talk about it at all, so I'll bring you to my pastor and let him talk about it. Well, what that does is it perpetuates the problem, which is, most people are never going to meet Jesus because how many people are actually going to make it to a Sunday? It's so few. And so the, the gospel witness is so devoid um, of presence. There's just not presence with a gospel witness. in, And the language we use is where you live, work, learn, and play. Your neighborhood, your workplace, your school, or recreational places. It's just not there. And then the other problem of it is that people then don't think the gospel has anything to do with everyday life. Because... It has to do with Sunday. Like Sunday is about the gospel, but not Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And, you know, my afterlife, that the gospel is good news for that, but not my work life. And so you don't get this idea the gospel is for all of life. It's just kind of the entry point, and it's what happens when I die. It's good news for that. And therefore, what we have is we have lives that are very, very much lacking the power of God, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation, and lacking this this kind of like saturation with the good news of Jesus, so most of our life isn't about Jesus at all, and uh, and so we have this Jesus centered life for an hour or two on Sunday, and that's it. Yeah, so it's almost like we compartmentalize the gospel. Is that another way to say kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, you know, Cal Tim Keller is famous for saying uh, many people think the gospel is the ABCs of Christianity, but it's really the A to Z, um, and so yeah, we compartmentalize. We have we have this kind of yeah secular sacred divide in most of our minds. We won't say it that way, but I mean, if you were to ask most people, tell me how the gospel changes how you work. Tell me how it changes your relationships. How does it affect the way you treat your neighbors? I mean, even in this moment, cultural moment we're in right now, and I won't get into it too much, but just the racial conversation, most people don't know how the gospel applies to that. In fact, they think if you talk about it, you're walking away from the gospel instead of going. And the gospel is all about reconciliation with God and man. So it does have something to say. Do we know what, how to apply the gospel to this present moment? And I think many don't. Well, in that concept of, of learning how the gospel applies, how to actually bring it into the everyday of life, is something you call gospel fluency. So I wonder if you can explain why did you choose that metaphor, the metaphor of fluency, as a, a helpful way to think about this issue? Yeah, well, the the heart of it comes from Ephesians four fifteen, where Paul Paul's talking about growing us up in love, growing us up in maturity, and he defines maturity as Christ. So Christ is the new man, the the true picture of what it means to be human. And to grow us up into Christ, we have to speak the truth in love, 
in all things, he says. In other words, in every area of your life, you need to know how to speak the truth in love. And most people hear that and they think, oh, so you got to say hard words to one another because people have made that like a, a short phrase to say, I've got to, I love you, brother, and I got to say something difficult, just going to speak the truth in love. And that's not what he, I mean, that, that does happen. But later he says in verse 21, the truth is in Jesus. So Paul is basically saying, we're speaking the truth about Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, even his present intercession before God the Father. We're learning how to speak those truths into everyday life. And that's the only way we're going to grow up into the fullness of Christ, into maturity, uh, because we grow up into Christ by speaking the truths of Christ and then walking and believing in faith in those realities and hopes. Um, and so fluency, the concept of that is it just... If anyone's ever learned a language, they know there's a difference between learning it in a classroom, learning vocabulary, sentence structure, and you, most of those people are still terrible at the language. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Uh, but fluency, you have to get immersed in a culture that they speak it. And you know you're fluent when you stop translating in your head. You know, like, I'm listening to Spanish. What does that mean in English? Now, what is that? What do I want to say in English? Now I got to translate my head back to Spanish, and then I say it out in Spanish. People who are fluent don't do that. They hear Spanish, think Spanish, process Spanish, feel Spanish, and then speak Spanish. Mm. And eventually, you even dream it, and you don't even you don't know you're doing it. And so, the concept of fluency is, I can take in the the world with the gospel. Like I could, I'm listening with gospel ears. I'm thinking with gospel, like heart and content and realities. Uh, and then when I'm speaking it out, it's all being, it's all coming out with the gospel being the primary language. Another way to think about it is you usually, you always speak your mother tongue. You were born into a family. We're born into the family of God through the very word of the gospel. So it, sh it, it ought to be our mother tongue in that sense, that it, really is how we filter the world, think through the world, process our own internal world, and hopefully speak it out into a world that desperately needs uh, the good news of Jesus. Yeah. So what's the difference, though, between the gospel fluency that you're advocating for and on the one hand, and on the other hand, maybe a simplistic, over-spiritualized response to like every challenge we might face in life that's essentially just like, well... You just need to remember the gospel and everything will be okay, or you just need to believe the gospel more. Like, what would you say to someone who's hearing you speak and they're saying, it sounds like you're kind of pushing for that, that that feels very shallow to me, even though it, it says the right word, it says gospel. Right. That that's not helpful when people say that, you know, you just need to believe the gospel. Because I well, what do you what do you mean by that? You know, so a good example in in this situation would be like, okay. If, my, if I'm disciplining my kids and I watch my son and my son, he tends to go towards shame. So real, I mean, even as a teenager, we'll still kind of cover up under a blanket when he's feeling the shame of his sin. Uh, I'm not just going to say, hey, Caleb, you need to believe the gospel. I'm going to I'm going to actually bring the gospel. I'm going to say, hey, son, I want to remind you that you're dearly loved by God. I mean, you were you were loved, and he knows this. So I wouldn't have to say all the things I'm about to say. That one word would be enough because we've had the conversation so many times. But, uh, you know, you don't have to hide. God saw you before you even had faith in Jesus as a sinner, as one who re who was in rebellion. And yet we know the gospel tells us that while we will, were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love for you in that. And so I, in that moment, I re might remind him, hey, when you weren't even re running toward God, God loved you 
saw you, he sent his son to die for you, to really remove the the shame you're experiencing, to cover that with his righteousness. So I might do that in that moment. Now, I don't have to say all that because my son has heard me say that so many times. So in that moment, I just might say something like, hey, remember, Caleb, you don't have to hide. I know you're feeling shame over your sin, but remember what God's done for you in Christ. So you, you can pull back the covers and we can talk. Uh, so that might happen. Or I might be having a conversation who's, with someone who's gone to had a really bad day at work. And, and as they're working through it, realize that reason why they're having such difficulty thinking through that work day is because they felt really rejected by their boss. They might have failed at the job that day. And, and so I can remind them, <clears throat> your, your sense of significance is not in your work. In fact, if it is, and we're still believing in a work salvation, that your identity uh, and even the way you're standing is sustained before God is through how well you work. If that's what you believe, then we've walked away from the truth of the gospel, which says your standing is in how well Jesus worked. And his righteousness is now your righteousness by faith in Christ. And so now I'm not just talking about the death. I'm actually talking about the life of Christ in that moment because he lived a life that was perfectly acceptable and obeyed God absolutely in every way that we don't. And so now we can rest when we go to work. We are going to fail. We're going to fall short. <clears throat> but we have a, a far better righteousness and, and a standing before God because of that. So it's that kind of application of the gospel that we're talking about. It's not just, okay, I know you had a bad day at work. Believe the gospel, man. Come on. That doesn't, that's not helpful at all. It's actually taking the truths of the gospel and speaking into that person's life in a way that even as I was doing it, hopefully someone was listening going like, oh man, that's good news. And you know that you've done it well because it sounds like good news. That's what the gospel means, good news. So when I'm done, you should go, oh, thank you so much, man. I needed that. That changes the way I look at my whole day. You know, I think it's it's easy for reformed folks like us to kind of, uh, I mean, it's a favorite pastime to uh, be a little bit critical of the seeker kind of church and, you know, attractional type churches where, you know, people can kind of just come, they walk in the back door, they sit down, they watch a show of some sort, and then they leave. And there's really, uh, that's kind of, that's kind of all there is to it. Um but I wonder, are there things in the way that we even think about the church and, and maybe particularly corporate worship that you think can contribute to this mindset that, you know, there, there, there are experts in the church who are doing the ministry and, um, you know, maybe I just don't feel the need to be as fluent in the gospel because uh, there's just certain th emphases that maybe make it not as important, practically speaking. It's interesting uh, in terms of the reform context, I mean, which I belong to. So I'm going to, you know, tell on myself a little bit. But um, I, I do think, um, in some cases, we've we've raised up certain people pretty high. You know, on a uh, we have such a value of the preaching of the word, which is great. We should, but therefore, the ones who preach it are elevated because of the value of preaching. And, and what that can do is the kind of, and I don't like this language, I'm going to use it for a moment, the clergy-laity divide is quite, quite high. Why do you say you don't like that language? Because I don't really believe in it. <laughs> I mean, let me say it this way. The word laity is, is meant to be applied to even pastors, that, that we're, all, we're all humans, and we're all normal people who have sinned and fall short, and we're all broken. And, and so we're all, but we, we, oftentimes people don't see their pastors as laity. 
They don't see them as normal everyday people who struggle just like everybody else, right? So that's why I don't like it because it it does create a category. This and then the clergy is the professional. It's the and and oftentimes and I know this personally because I you know I I went through a really dark season about six months ago, seven months ago. My one of my very good friends took his life. He's a pastor, and I shared honestly with my congregation, "Hey, I'm not doing well." <laughs> and uh, you know, fast forward a few months and you know, God's doing a lot of work in my life. And one of the members comes up, she goes, man, it's so good to have the old Jeff back. I, that other guy, I really don't want that here anymore. And I knew what, and I don't want to like tear apart that person, but I knew what was going on is we all kind of want to have at least one person we can look at that we think has got it all together. And there is only one person that yeah, we has have it all that. together. That's Jesus. Even the apostle Paul, right? Philippians 3, verse 12 and on. Not that I've already attained this. I mean, this is the apostle Paul at the end of his life. He still doesn't think he's gotten there. And so that's the other reason I don't like clergy. The way we handle that language is what I mean. Because it's like, oh, you know, Pastor Jeff, like, I'm so glad you're back. And what that means is your life is really a great life that we all look up to and hope we could have. And it's like, that's not helpful. Because uh, I'm I'm just as broken and in need of the gospel as anybody else, and so the more that I can be that real guy who needs Jesus in everyday life and needs the gospel applied to my everyday life, the more people are going to believe they need the same thing. But what happens, I think, to answer your question, is that when that gets elevated, it's like Jeff's the expert, and so in some ways, it's like um, he can do this way better than anybody else. So let's just keep letting him do it. But then what they miss is the fact that I'm still just as much in need of growing and changing me and transforming as they are, which that brings me back down. And I can say, yes, you can be like me, a broken man who needs the gospel. But the reason why I'm honestly good at applying the gospel to everyday life is because I know I need it so badly. Not because I'm a good at preaching. <laughs> How do you balance that with what Paul says, though, when he gives qualifications for pastors and elders in a church where there does seem to be this expectation that someone who's in leadership in the church would um, be knowledgeable of the gospel, would understand what it means and how it applies, would have lives that are in some sense worthy of imitation. So it seems like the Bible itself puts pastors and church leaders on some level of a pedestal a little bit, but then like you're saying, you don't want it to seem like you're this super apostle and everyone else is just sort of down below. Right. The, the key word that you use there is it's worthy of imitation. So it's not only worthy of imitation, but it's it, mm. it can be imitated. Yeah, unpack that a little bit. Yeah, so so if, if I'm set up in such a way that nobody could live the life I'm trying to imitate, then I'm actually creating a, a kind of a, pap- a papal authority. Like, like, I really am high and lofty, and you, you shouldn't expect to be able to follow my example. It's too high. Instead of, no, and I would say like the elder passage, the elder requirements, for instance, I hope every Christian lives that life, mm. right? Like I hope they all are humble and, you know, hospitable. And I mean, I, I think the example is so that it can be followed, not an example that can't be followed. And so the Paul saying, follow me as I follow Christ isn't, I know you can't, but it'd be really cool if you could. Mm. It's no, I think you can. And so, I, yeah, I'm ahead of you. And I am an example, and I do have qualifications I need to fulfill, but not so that I'm the only one, but so that I might set an example for the flock, as First Peter says. Why? So that they'll live that way. And uh, really, the whole church should look like 
living, their lives should look like the lives of elders, even if they aren't called or qualified as an elder, because maybe they aren't all able to teach. And that, you know, that's a unique thing. But I would sure hope every husband is able to lead his household and every wife able to lead her household, which is a requirement of an elder. If they can't, then our whole church is a mess. So all those things, I think, are so that the church might embody that reality because there are a few that have at least said, follow me as I follow Christ. That's a really helpful distinction that, that um, as an elder, you're called to live a certain life uh, that others could imitate. Do you find that you have to be intentional about making sure, because I'm sure no pastor listening to us right now, probably very few, if any, would intentionally be thinking in their minds, I'm going to try to portray my life in such a way that everyone knows they can never be as spiritual as me. Uh, but do you, do you find you have to be intentional about um, communicating that, making that actually true and evident to the people that you are leading and, and demonstrating the gospel's relevance for the everyday stuff of your life? Absolutely. Yeah. Regard, whether you want to or not, people are going to lift you up, right? The, the nature of a stage, a platform, uh, you, I mean, where else in life do you, does one person get to talk for 30 to 45 minutes and everybody has to be quiet? Well, and not just talk, you're, you are purporting to teach the very words of God. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's just, the position itself has so much possibility for spiritual abuse or and and help. I mean, it, both extremes, right? And so, like it or not, people are going to do that. They're going to lift you up. And so, and that, I'm not saying that that's quite, that's just, I mean, we should esteem, you know, we should honor, like, that's, that's good. It's biblical commands to do that. But it's on, then on us who have that power, who have that position, who have that authority, to steward that well, and one of the ways that we steward that well is that we we tell on ourselves. <laughs> we tell the truth about ourselves. We we talk about how the passage I'm preaching, I still struggle to live it out, and sometimes I do have doubts, and so we we let them in, and not in a way that you know like magnifies sin or you know we're not trying to get into that kind of like woe is me, look at how bad I am. No, we're just saying. I need this text as much as you do, and I need the power of the Spirit as much as you do. I cannot do this without Him, just as much as you can't do this without Him. So we tell on ourselves. Like one of our, when we give reviews of whoever's preaching at our church, we, we ask the question, did we speak in such a way that a non-believer could, could relate? Uh, did, we, did we speak in a way that, that showed humility about our own need for the text? And did Jesus, was Jesus really the hero of this, or was I? And so if they walk away impressed with me, I've failed. They, I want them to be impressed with him. And so that means I, like Paul, am willing to say, hey, I, I am the one who's in need of this. I am a sinner who's now a saint in Christ, but I still struggle. And so, so I think that's one. I think the other is not only through our preaching, but we should, we should do the very things we expect others to do. I know lots of pastors who go like, hey, you know, we expect all of our people to be in small groups, but I'm not going to be because, you know, I, I can't be, have relationships with people in the church. Right, right. And you're like, okay, then why would you expect them to have relationships with people in the church? Mm. So don't call people to something you're not willing to do. Uh, if you're expecting people to invite their friends to the gathering, are you inviting non-believers to your house? You know, and so just all those things are... I think that starts to bring us down, that we are amongst the people. You know, we are shepherds over the flock 
whom we are amongst, Peter says. And so that means we're living a life with them. And then that's the other thing is, I remember one woman said to me once, she said, she was in my missional community. She said, I don't understand why people like have you travel over the place to speak. Like, don't they know who you are? And what she meant is like, don't they realize you're just a normal person? <laughs> like you're, you're not that impressive. And, and the truth is I'm not. When Nobody's that impressive when you spend time with them long enough because you realize they are a normal human just like everybody else. And so I think when, when leaders are not amongst the people living a normal life that they can see, you will be exalted in ways you shouldn't. But when they can see you and realize that you struggle just like they do, then, then you're, yeah, they might, hopefully they esteem you because they realize you're humble when you acknowledge your sin and you repent openly and you don't try to cover up and like they see all that. Then I think what happens is they want, they, they believe they also can follow your example. So I guess um, what maybe practical advice, are there, you know, three things that you would say that a pastor listening who is maybe suspecting that I, I don't fully uh, have not fully applied the gospel to my life and to these things that I struggle with uh, like I should, uh, what, what would be three starting points for them? Not, not the whole story, but three things they could you know, start with to start down that road. Well, I think the first is to invite the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you. Search me and know me, O God. See if there's any wicked way in me. I, I mean, it's the Spirit's job to make the truths of Jesus known to us. You know, John 14, 15, and 16 clearly lay out what the Spirit will do. And he's really good at his job. So it's a scary thing to ask. Yeah, it is because I and that it, it requires a, a a true desire to know the truth about myself. Uh, and and yet, so I'd start there. And then second, um, I one thing that I I try to encourage leaders to do is regularly like sit in the as, one aspect of the gospel um, for a while, like the life of Christ. And I, I'll do this with a bunch of leaders. Like, why is that good news? And they'll say one reason why it's good news. And then I'll ask, why is that good news? And why is that good news? And why is that good news? Just on one small aspect of the life of Christ. Why is that good news? And the death, then the death of Christ and the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, the present intercession and the future return. All that's part of the good news story of God's salvation. So just sit in one of those for a bit and say, Holy Spirit, would you Help me to ask that question and keep asking that question. Why is the gospel, why is the life of Jesus good news? Because he gets what I go through. Why is that good news? Because I will never experience anything that he hasn't experienced. Why is that good news? And I, I, as I'm doing this, I'm like, Holy Spirit, lead me, guide me. Well, that's good news because I am not alone in this. Mm. Why is that good news? Because he has compassion for me right now. And I could keep going, right? Just on that one little thing. And I would say that should be a daily practice. And you should work, if you wanted to, just work yourself through each aspect of the life, the death, the burial, all those elements that I just described. Take a week on each one of them, if you want, or take a day and just rotate through them. But if you just did that with the help of the Holy Spirit, you would find yourself beginning to be so immersed in the good news of Christ. You would go through your day with, I mean, you'd be lifted, mm. like, with the power of God. So I'm struck that sound that sounds a lot like it's almost a, an approach to meditating on on the gospel, on the good news. And I, you know, as I hear that, even even in my own heart, you know, it's so easy to quickly jump to, well, I, I kind of know the answers to all those. You know, what's why is the life of Jesus good news? And you kind of got your answer, and you're like, all right, I'm ready for the next thing. 
Uh, but is there something about just the slowing down and the sitting in it for time that you think bears unique fruit? Yeah, absolutely. We're we're working on a curriculum right now that we're going to be bringing pastors through a two-year journey. Uh, and the first session is about gratitude. And and you know Israel's fault, their failure over and over again was they had they didn't sit long enough in the place of gratitude. They quickly moved forward to what we don't have, what's wrong with what's happened, and they didn't slow down and just go. I mean, I, the the pillar moving and stopping, I think, is is informative. That God, you know, that Moses goes in the tent, and then we know the transition from Moses to Joshua. Joshua stays in the tent. You know, there's this 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 lingering that that is required in order to truly be thankful and we don't linger we don't we don't create space to sit in the moment so like that little exercise i did with you or i was doing in front of you i was if if i would have had more time i would have lingered longer mm. in each one of those truths and just said what is that holy spirit let that sink in help me to really understand how good that is that jesus gets what i go through and where do I need that right now? Like, where do I need to believe that right now? And just sit in that and, and then give thanks. And the thankfulness is the key. Because as soon as you start to really linger and give thanks for these wonderful truths in Christ, then they, they, they do take root in your heart. And thankfulness is the key. Lingering in gratitude is the key to those things taking root so that they then go with you through the day. And I, I, I see... a a counselor regularly now just to work through my own brokenness and stuff. And, and he said, Jeff, you have for far too long taken truths and you get them really quickly and you assimilate how to teach them really fast. And then you go give them away. And he said, like, Jeff, it's like you dehumanize yourself. Like you're not a sacred soul who needs to receive these truths and let them change you first. Let them saturate your heart to the degree at which they're flowing out of you. It's not just a, and I think this is a danger for pastors and preachers is that we read a text and we go, how am I going to preach this on Sunday? Mm. And it, and we don't sit in it and we don't get transformed by it. And in some ways it's the most dangerous occupation there is because you have to keep spewing out more and more stuff every week. And if you're not careful, you will do what you just said. I know the answer to this. I know how to speak it. I how to preach it. I even know the ways to make people really go, wow, that was amazing. I've never heard that before. But you didn't ever let it seep deeply into your soul. And unfortunately, you can live with the illusion that you're very spiritually mature, but you're incredibly devoid of, of the heart of Christ. And, and you're saying that a pastor might not even be aware of that dynamic. I'm convinced that most aren't. I wasn't. I'm talking. I'm telling on myself. This is this is part of who I was, because I was I became skilled at or, oration. I could sp I can speak effectively, and I know how to write a message well, and and I can get I get the truth. I mean, I read through the Bible every year, so I've been doing that since I was 22 years old. I'm 51, so I know the Word. I know how to preach the Word. I know how to pull out scriptures all over the place. But you know what? You could have all that and still not know Jesus. And that's the, that's the religious leaders of Jesus' day. He says that you diligently search the scriptures thinking that by them you'll have life, yet you fail to come to me. And man, I'm telling you, pastoral ministry is a dangerous occupation because you could easily spend your whole life talking about someone you don't even know. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for 
taking the time to talk with us today and to uh, yeah share a little bit about your, your own story, uh, but also just encourage all of us to pursue that uh, deeper communion with Christ. That was Jeff Vanderstelt on what it means to become fluent in the gospel. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Gospel Fluency, Speaking the Truths of Jesus into the Everyday Stuff of Life, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, would you consider leaving us a review? That helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.